Roman Emperor Commodus had wanted to inaugurate the new year of 193 by emerging from the gladiators' barracks clad in armor, leading a charge of the city's fiercest warriors. He'd shirked the traditional purple robes of royalty. He wanted everyone to know he wasn't like other emperors. He was undefeatable. Instead, in the final hours of the year 192, the gladiator king was strangled by the very man who taught him to fight. As Commodus gurgled his last breath, Narcissus pulled his arm from the emperor's neck. He slipped beneath the bathwater, his bloodshot eyes looking up at his assassins like a gutted fish. Narcissus looked back at Marcia, who was still holding the bottle of poison wine. The emperor was finally dead. But his legions of soldiers were not. If Marcia and Narcissus didn't act fast, they would be the next targets for assassination. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on the Roman Emperor Commodus, who was killed by his mistress, Marcia, and his trusted wrestling coach, Narcissus. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Emperor Commodus's rule was the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. In the last years of his reign, his deepening paranoia had caused him to start executing people at a whim. Aristocrats, statesmen, even his own advisors. His favorite mistress, Marcia, had been the only one able to temper his insanity. But even his patience for her wore thin. When Marcia discovered her own name at the top of Commodus's kill list, she devised a plan to save herself from the emperor's madness. But even with Commodus gone, Marcia and her co-conspirators were still in great danger. Everyone in Rome hated Commodus. Everyone, that is, except for his soldiers. Under his corrupt rule, they were allowed to indulge in all the looting, violence, and debauchery they desired. They didn't want anyone to take their benefactor away from them. Soldiers warned Commodus about every previous attempt on his life and ensured the would-be assassins were punished. If they discovered Marcia and Narcissus at the scene of the murder, they would mete out swift and brutal revenge. Early on New Year's Day in 193, Marcia and Narcissus summoned Eclectus, the Chamberlain, and Lytus, the head of the Praetorian Guard. They'd been in on the assassination plan. Their names were on the top of the execution list, too. Now it was their time to help. Eclectus knew they had to dispose of the evidence before anything else could be done. But how were they going to smuggle the emperor's body out of a palace crawling with soldiers? Eclectus summoned his loyal servants 
and told them to bring the emperor's dirty bed linens. They wrapped Commodus in sheets and heaped him into a basket of dirty laundry. It was the early hours of the morning. The palace guards were half asleep, wearily leaning on their spears. No one batted an eye as two slaves hurried past with an unusually large pile of laundry. Commodus, who had come into the world swaddled in the purple robes of royalty, was carried out of his palace in sheets filthy with his own bile. Once outside, they hefted the body into a wagon and rode to the outskirts of the city. When they were far enough out, they dumped the heap of sheets into a gully and left it for the wild animals. Back at the palace, Marcia, Eclectus, and Lytus had moved on to the next problem, explaining Commodus's sudden death. After some debate, they came to the perfect solution. He died of a stroke. Anyone would believe that with his heavy drinking and constant orgies. He'd been in less than ideal health for a while now. But before they made the announcement, they needed to have someone ready to fill the power vacuum. Someone with the wisdom and experience to restore Rome to its former glory. And someone who wouldn't investigate the fallen emperor's death too thoroughly. They decided to seek out Pertinax. Pertinax was the urban prefect, essentially the city administrator of Rome. He was a former senator, a renowned military hero, and most notably, the last surviving advisor who'd been appointed by Commodus's father, Marcus Aurelius. The rest had already been executed. Pertinax was universally loved, and he lived humbly in borderline poverty. He was the perfect antidote to Commodus's extravagances. So the conspirators slipped into the night and made haste to Pertinax's house. Once there, they rattled the gate, waking the porter who dozed off at his post. When the porter saw Lytus, the commander of the Praetorian Guard, standing at the gate, he immediately ran inside and woke up Pertinax. Pertinax and the porter came to the same conclusion. Commodus' guards had finally come to kill him. Pertinax had watched as Commodus executed several of his advisors. He'd been expecting his own time to come sooner or later. Pertinax told the porter to let the visitors in. He didn't even get out of bed. He might as well be comfortable for the last moments of his life. When Marcia, Eclectus, and Lytus came in, they found Pertinax reclining in bed, utterly serene. He said, quote, For a long time now, I've been waiting for my life to end in this fashion and I was surprised that Commodus was so slow to act against me. Why do you delay? You will be carrying out your orders, and I will be relieved from degrading hope and constant fear. The conspirators had no idea what he was talking about. Lytus tried to explain that they weren't there to kill him. Actually, they just killed Commodus, and they wanted Pertinax to step up as emperor. Pertinax didn't believe them. He thought they were taunting an old man before cutting him down in his bed. Eclectus pulled a tablet from his robes. He said, If you don't believe what we say, read this tablet. You know Commodus's handwriting. You see it regularly. Pertinax held the tablet up to a candle. It was a list of names to be executed in Commodus's unmistakable handwriting. Sure enough, at the top of the list were Marcia, Lytus, and Eclectus. Now he believed them. Pertinax set the tablet down. He was over 60 years old, in failing health, 
and had no aspiration to the throne. But he devoted his entire life to serving Rome, and if this was his duty, so be it. Once Pertinax agreed to be the new emperor, the next step was to break the news to the soldiers. Lytus took the responsibility for that one since he was the commander of the Praetorian Guard. The others wanted to be there too to see how they responded. Before they set out for the Praetorian camp, they sent a messenger to the Senate to inform them of Commodus's death. Even if the soldiers revolted, they knew the senators would be overjoyed at the news. It was nearly daybreak, and some of the citizens were already awake, preparing for the New Year's festivities. Word spread quickly through the streets that Commodus was dead and Pertinax was taking over. Before dawn, the streets were abuzz with people shouting, The tyrant is dead! The gladiator is slain! By the time Pertinax, Lytus, Eclectus, and Marcia walked into the Praetorian camp, thousands of common people had gathered there to quell any uprising from the soldiers. Lytus and Pertinax marched through the joyful crowd, gathered the soldiers, and called them to attention. Lytus told them, quote, Commodus, your emperor, is dead of apoplexy. You know the way he lived his life. Now he lies dead, choked by his own gluttony. In place of Commodus, we bring you a man respected for his years, temperate in his way of life, and renowned for his courageous exploits. Now fortune is giving you an emperor who is also a kindly father to you. At that, the citizens exploded into applause. After 12 years of fear and chaos, they were finally free. Order would be restored at last. The soldiers stared up at Pertinax with cold, narrow eyes. He met their gaze unflinching. The older soldiers remembered Pertinax with fondness. They'd served with him long before Commodus came to power. But there were only a few of the old guard left, and the younger soldiers didn't want a respected, temperate leader cutting off their lifestyle of excess. But the soldiers were few compared to the civilians, and they were unarmed. The flood of people surrounded them, cheering in support of Pertinax. The thunder of their voices drowned out any discontent from the military men. One by one, the soldiers begrudgingly joined in the throng, proclaiming Pertinax emperor. A wreath of laurels was passed through the crowd and placed on the new emperor's head. As the sun finally rose on the first day of January 193, Pertinax led the people and the soldiers in a procession to the imperial palace. In the streets, the people gave thanks to the gods and called for Commodus's body to be dragged through the city on hooks. Pertinax entered the Senate House, where the senators were already gathered. They immediately turned and erupted in praise. One senator took his hand and led him to the throne. Pertinax begged the men to let him decline the position, but their cheering wouldn't subside. The old man lowered himself onto the throne and delivered his first address. Quote, No ordinary task awaits me in proving myself worthy of such an honor. Those who have grown accustomed to reveling in the extravagant excesses of a tyranny not only object to any change toward a more moderate and more economical way of life, but they reject it as a mean and wretched way to live. And so, you must cooperate with me and consider the management of the empire as a joint enterprise. And you must entertain high hopes of living under an aristocracy, not under a tyranny. 
the Senate burst into applause. Pertinax was escorted into the Imperial Palace to begin his reign. Marcia took a deep breath, letting go of the years of fear and exhaustion she'd felt at Commodus' side. Now it was Eclectus standing by her side, a man she had literally trusted with her life. After a lifetime spent as a mistress manipulating men from the shadows, she'd found someone she could call a partner. Eclectus and Marcia were married a few weeks later. The beginning of Pertinax's reign was a time of hope and peace for the Roman Empire. But they would soon discover that the empire was far from safe. Coming up, we'll take a look at Pertinax's short time as Emperor of Rome. Now back to the story. After Pertinax was sworn in as emperor on January 1st, 193, he went back to the Senate House and thanked Lytus for his role in taking Commodus out of power. As he was leaving, he was confronted by the consul, Falco. Falco said, We may know what sort of an emperor you will be from this, that we see behind you Lytus and Marcia, the instruments of Commodus's crimes. The public still believed that Commodus had died of a stroke. No one had any idea that Lytus and Marcia were far from the loyal sycophants that once appeared to be. Pertinax replied, You are young, Consul, and do not know the necessity of obedience. They obeyed Commodus, but as soon as they had an opportunity, they showed what had always been their desire. And with that, the first seeds of doubt about the true nature of Commodus's death began to take root. As soon as Pertinax took the throne, he set to work righting his predecessor's wrongs. But he was afraid the people who had benefited from Commodus's corruption would be reluctant to accept change. Commodus had shown no interest in actually running the empire. He'd left state matters to a string of ill-chosen advisors who sold government positions to the highest bidder. Returning Rome to some semblance of a functional government would be a massive undertaking. For years, the army had roamed the streets, harassing anyone who challenged their authority. Pertinax immediately forbade the soldiers from carrying axes or attacking any Roman citizens. They grumbled in discontent, but obeyed for the most part. Since the treasury was drained, Pertinax sold off Commodus's personal property to fund the military. He also returned land Commodus had seized from farmers and exempted them from taxes and all government duties for 10 years. By doing so, he hoped to restore the faith between the government and private citizens that had been utterly destroyed over the past decade. To honor the throne as a position of service rather than of personal power, Pertinax didn't allow his name to be stamped on imperial property. He believed everything in the palace was the property of the people, not the emperor. He also didn't allow his son to live in the imperial palace. If his natural heir wanted to succeed him as emperor, he was going to have to earn it. In all ways, Pertinax proved to be a fair, generous, and morally upright ruler. Ironically, his virtues proved to be his downfall. The Praetorian soldiers had tasted unchecked power and unlimited wealth under Commodus, and they didn't take kindly to the new emperor's attempts to rein them in. There was so much mutiny, even Lytus was starting to regret choosing Pertinax as emperor. 
There were also growing rumblings that Pertinax hadn't come to power by honest means. The soldiers were starting to wonder if Commodus's death was something more than a stroke. Perhaps for this reason, Lytus thought it was best to get rid of the unpopular emperor before the truth came out. Less than three months into Pertinax's reign, Lytus organized a conspiracy to remove him. On March 28, 193, he marched two or three hundred soldiers to the imperial palace. Rather than fight or flee, Pertinax came out to meet them. The soldiers stopped in their tracks, surprised by his dignity. Standing right beside him was Eclectus. He'd risked his life to install a fair emperor, and he'd risk his life defending him too. Pertinax spoke to them and said, quote, It is inevitable that every man must die someday. If you are still grieved at the death of Commodus, remember that it is hardly surprising that death caught up with him. He was mortal, but if you think his death was the result of treachery, the blame does not lie with me. Bring charges against someone else. End quote. The soldiers began to put their swords away. The power of his words had swayed them. That is, all of them except one. One soldier leapt forward and yelled, The soldiers have sent you this sword. The rest of the men joined in, rushing forward to attack Pertinax. Eclectus drew his sword and fought back, wounding a few of the soldiers. But he was killed alongside the emperor he'd created. Pertinax's head was cut off and mounted on a spear. After 87 days, his reign was over. The soldiers stood at the entrance of the imperial palace and announced that Pertinax was dead. The people erupted in grief. With Pertinax gone, so was any hope for the Roman Empire. The soldiers then declared with brazen shamelessness that the empire was up for sale. They would hand over the throne to the highest bidder. That offer made its way to a nobleman named Didius Julianus, who was having a dinner party that evening. He'd been drinking heavily, but he hurried to the walls of the army camp where the empire was being auctioned off. Julianus shouted up to the guard tower that he had boxes full of gold and silver. There was already a man inside the camp offering a good bid, so the soldiers didn't want to let Julianus in until they knew he was serious. They lowered down a ladder, and Julianus ambled up to confer with the soldiers. He promised to revive Commodus's memory and restore the Praetorian Guard to their former glory. He also promised to give them each 5,000 sesterces more than the other bidder had offered. The soldiers shouted down to the other man, how much do you raise him? They bartered for a while, raising their bids by 5,000 sesterces at a time, screaming their offers over the camp's wall. Finally, Julianus won out. Before nightfall, Julianus was led to the imperial palace where Pertinax's corpse was still lying. This time, the procession was met with public ridicule, not celebration. The people were disgusted at how low the empire had fallen. The senators were disgusted too, but they were too afraid to do anything about it, concerned they'd be killed like Pertinax. They paid their respects to the new emperor with careful composure. Outside the Senate House, a mob erupted, shouting that he'd stolen the throne. Julianus came out and offered them bribes too, 
but the people chanted together, We don't want it. We won't take it. Julianus ordered that the protesters be slain. By March 30, 193, Julianus formally became emperor. He immediately returned the palace to the same drunken debauchery it had known under Commodus. Pertinax's reforms were reversed. The soldiers once again reveled in excess, looting houses all day and drinking all night. The people still openly reviled Julianus, but as long as the army was on his side, there was nothing to be done. This state of affairs lasted for about a week, and then the soldiers began to realize Julianus wasn't quite as rich as he'd claimed to be. The drunken bids he'd offered them were far more than he was actually able to pay. Soon, the soldiers had joined the civilians in mocking and insulting Julianus whenever he appeared in public. There was now absolutely nothing protecting the emperor from removal. Hearing about the chaos in Rome, generals from the provinces of Syria, Britain, and Pannonia saw an opportunity to seize power. Septimius Severus, who in Pannonia was physically closest to Rome, marched his army toward the city, ready to take the throne by force. It had been less than two weeks since Julianus became emperor. When Severus's troops arrived at the city gate, the Roman people were, as the historian Herodian wrote, understandably dismayed by the unexpectedness of this development. But they hated Julianus too, so they didn't see the point in fighting back. The people greeted the invading forces with laurel branches and welcomed them in. Julianus fortified himself in the palace. He sent the Praetorian soldiers out to meet Severus's army, but they'd spent the past decade drinking and thieving, not training for battle. They were too weak to put up much of a fight. With the enemy already in the city and the Senate, soldiers, and public turned against him, Julianus had no idea what to do. He grew paranoid, just like Commodus before him. And like Commodus, he put Marcia and Lytus at the top of his execution list. It had long been suspected that Marcia, Narcissus, and Lytus were behind Commodus's sudden demise, and everyone knew that Lytus had led the attack against Pertinax. Julianus feared the old conspirators were plotting to overthrow him as well. In April of 193, Julianus sent a platoon of soldiers to Marcia's home. It had only been a couple weeks since Eclectus had been killed, and Marcia had hoped to grieve him in peace. But it appeared she'd be joining her husband sooner than anticipated. Marcia, Narcissus, and Lytus were hauled to the imperial palace and forced to their knees. Julianus stood before them and addressed the gathering crowd. He said that he was the strongest emperor to ever take the throne and that any citizen who pledged their loyalty to Severus would be treated the same as the traitors who had killed Commodus. Julianus drew his gladius. The royal sword, inlaid with gold, was only meant as a symbol of authority. It wasn't meant to draw blood. But ever since Commodus had come to power, the Roman Empire had been ruled by blood. Marcia, who had caused the fall of one mad king, was killed by another incarnation of the same madness. The fate she'd sought to avert was unavoidable. While Julianus was executing Commodus's assassins, Severus's troops had reached the Senate House. By the end of May, the senators voted to execute Julianus 
and install Severus as emperor. He'd only ruled for 66 days. This was the third Roman emperor dead in only four months. However, the chaos was only beginning. Over the next few months, the Roman Empire was torn apart as generals battled for control of the throne. 193 became known as the Year of the Five Emperors for the number of men who laid their brief claim to the throne. After a few years of civil war, Severus came out the victor. In the early 200s, he restored a brief peace to the Roman Empire and was eventually succeeded by his two sons and two nephews, all of whom were eventually assassinated. But Rome was already on its way to collapse. By 235, the empire's unity began to fracture, leading to a period of near collapse called the Crisis of the Third Century. By 476, Rome's Western Empire had totally fallen. Commodus's death marked the beginning of the darkest, most chaotic chapter in Rome's history. But what might have happened if Commodus hadn't been assassinated? Would the outcome have been any different? Coming up, we'll take a look at how history might have been changed if Commodus had lived. Now, back to the story. Commodus's 12-year reign brought the Roman Empire to the brink of collapse, but his assassination sparked a year of even more severe turmoil and civil war. It's hard to say whether anything would have ended differently if the assassination hadn't succeeded. Commodus was hated by nearly everyone in the empire. It's very likely that if the conspirators hadn't ended his life on December 31st, 192, someone else would have done the deed sooner or later. But it wouldn't have happened before Commodus got around to killing everyone on his New Year's execution list, which, apart from his assassins, included the newly elected consuls, all the remaining advisors his father had appointed, and many prominent members of the Senate. It's quite possible that once Commodus had slaughtered all the other powerful statesmen, he would have finally destroyed the Senate and declared himself the sole ruler of Rome, returning the empire's government to an absolute monarchy. That damage to the balance of power would have been extremely difficult to undo, even if Commodus was eventually removed. Without anyone to rein in Commodus's spending, the empire would have continued to hemorrhage money. His extravagant lifestyle and poorly considered policies had already bankrupted the treasury. And the city's infrastructure had already been crippled by famine and fires. Commodus had never shown any interest in governing, and if he'd let these problems continue to go unchecked, Rome probably would have collapsed on itself within a matter of decades. If the empire didn't decay from the inside out, it would have been decimated by an invading army. During Commodus's reign, the barbarian forces in what would become modern-day Germany had begun attacking the Roman Empire's outlying provinces. Commodus largely ignored this problem and left the generals stationed in the provinces to fend for themselves. When Septimius Severus took power in 193, he sent more forces to fight the barbarians, fending off a full-scale invasion. Without that support from the capital, it's likely the barbarians would have succeeded in overtaking Roman territory. And if Rome itself was in disarray, they may have overthrown the entire empire. This brings us to an interesting point. Once Commodus took the throne, 
the eventual fate of the Roman Empire was already sealed. In the end, it may not have mattered if or when Commodus was removed from power. He'd already set Rome on the slow path to collapse. The most serious impact of Commodus's reign was the normalization of corruption. As we saw in the months following his death, once Rome was used to bribery, executions, and wanton spending, it was impossible to steer the course back to the way things were before. When Commodus died, it led to a year of chaos, several years of civil war, and decades of crisis and near collapse. If he had lived, it only would have expedited the fall of the Roman Empire. Much like Marcia, Eclectus, Narcissus, and Lytus, Rome may have survived Commodus, but it couldn't survive all the chaos that followed. Marcia Demetrius may not have achieved her goal of saving the Roman Empire, or even of saving her own life. But on a different note, she may have accomplished something for Christianity. During her time with Commodus, Marcia influenced him to begin the slow process of ending the persecution of Christians. There were no edicts issued against Christians during his reign, and Marcia even convinced him to release Christian prisoners from the mines in Sardinia. One of those prisoners was a young slave named Calixtus, who went on to become Pope Calixtus I. He only served as Pope for about five years before his death, but during that time, he played an instrumental role in shaping church doctrine and allowing pagan converts into the church. It was a perfect time for that policy. The Roman people had looked to their emperor for spiritual guidance, and the moral decay that started with Commodus left many citizens feeling lost. The instability in the years and decades after his assassination turned many people toward Christianity. And because of the chaos during and after Commodus's reign, public attention was diverted from the Christians. The church was able to quietly organize and grow while everyone's eyes were turned toward palace intrigue and civil war. The persecution of Christianity didn't entirely end with Commodus, and later rulers would impose even harsher penalties on Christians. But without this period of relative safety, Christianity may not have been able to grow into the powerful force it became. For better or worse, without Christianity in Rome, the entire course of world history would be unforeseeably different. For all his egomania, Commodus's life and death taught us that an emperor is only as powerful as the institutions behind him. In an effort to expand his own power, Commodus crippled the Senate, infrastructure, and morality of the very empire he ruled. This eventually led to his own demise, and diminished the power of the empire moving forward. And by killing Commodus, his assassins inadvertently set a precedent of violence and political intrigue that threw Rome into nearly a century of chaos. They fought fire with fire, and in the end, the entire Roman Empire burned. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back next Monday. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by David Calbert and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.